when Ruth and I were newlyweds, this may be hard to believe, but occasionally we had some disagreements. And one of the disagreements we had was about my wardrobe, particularly my color coordination. She says, those two things don't go together. And I said, they do go together. She says, that's brown. It doesn't go with that other color. I said, it's not brown, it's green. And we went back and forth on this. And we never really did resolve it until... Uh, one day we had moved to Chicago. I had a new eye doctor. I went to my optometrist and he gave me a test. And the test looked something like this. And I had never taken a test like this. And it was these circles. And he said, I want you to read the numbers in the circles. And I said, well, I don't really see any numbers. And he says, what do you mean? I said, I don't see any numbers. And he said, well, just guess. And so I started guessing, you know, 43, 72, 12. You know, I, I kept naming numbers. I had no idea what he was talking about. I can't see any of those numbers, okay? Because my optometrist kept taking the test. They get to the last page of this little book I was looking at. And I said, finally, I can finally see a number. It's number six. And he says, okay. And I said, what is this all about? He says, well, uh, son, this is a... Uh, this is a test for color blindness. Oh, really? And he says, at first I thought you were just too stupid uh, to understand the test. But that last test, when you identify the number, that's, that's, that's a number that, that's a chart that only colorblind people can see. And you saw that perfectly. So I hate to tell you this, but you're very, very red, green, colorblind. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. What does this do to my life? How does it change my life? He goes, well, it doesn't change much of anything. He says, I wouldn't be an electrician. Uh, or I wouldn't be an airline pilot, but other than that, really doesn't change your life. Well, I said, well, I'm planning on being a pastor. He says, that's absolutely perfect. Great. Well, I had to go back to my beloved wife, the awesome Ruth Steve, and say, you know what? You were right. I was wrong. I don't know anything about colors. And from that point forward, Ruth was my wardrobe consultant, and I bowed down to her wishes, and I was so glad that now I knew uh, that she knew what she was talking about and that I was in the wrong. All right, guys, it was an awakening for me. I didn't realize. I thought I could see it perfectly, but, but this test revealed something to me that I had never seen before. Today, we're going to come to a passage of Scripture where something is revealed to the Apostle Peter and something is revealed to a man who lives in Caesarea, a man by the name of Cornelius that he has never seen before. Both of them will experience what I call the grace awakening in very different ways. And my hope is today that you and I will together experience the grace awakening in a fresh new way. You know, as I look at all the issues that we face in our lives, as we look at all the opportunities that surround us, uh, and we say, what, what, what can help where we are right now? And I don't care if it's in your workplace, whatever problem you're facing in your neighborhood, whatever it might be in culture, that this grace awakening is absolutely essential uh, to transformation of your life. And in fact, I'm going to say it this way. Nothing will so transform your perspective of God, yourself, and others than a personal awakening to the grace of God. I'm going to come with me to an a, uh, amazing true story. And this story is going to turn the Bible upside down. It's, it's, going to, it's going to really change things up in a very epic way. And, um, and hopefully it will turn my perspective and your perspective on God, yourself, and others as well. 
Uh, I want to pick up where we left off last weekend. You remember, we kind of focused in the book of Acts, which is a, a history uh, of an account of the early church 2,000 years ago. And we're focusing on the apostle Peter. And Peter had performed some amazing miracles with Aeneas, a man who could not walk, and Tabitha, a woman who had died. Both of them restored completely. And it got quite, uh, people quite excited and open to the good news of Jesus. Well, uh, that chapter 9 ends on this verse, Acts chapter 9, verse 43. And so Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. So guys, you got to set the scene here. Uh, I mean, you got to realize, uh, you could smell Simon the tanner's house from blocks away, all right? And Peter, who was used to smelly fish because he was a fisherman, decided that that was the place. He was welcomed into that home. And already, already God is beginning to do a work in the heart of Simon. Simon was, uh, Peter, was a, uh, was a very um, devout Jewish man. And Peter would ordinarily not really want to walk into the house of a tanner. Why? Because being in the presence of those animal skins can render you ceremonially unclean. And so, yeah, Simon the tanner was a, a Jewish man. But if there are degrees of Jewishness and there are. Uh, he was on the, the lowest degree of Jewishness you, you can be. And Peter uh, decides he's going to stay with him and Simon welcomes him. And so already God is beginning to break down some of the, some of the, the, the issues that, that Peter needs to learn about. He's beginning to have a grace awakening that he can begin to associate and see God do great things through people he could never have expected before. So the background of this, he's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. So far in the book of Acts, the church is totally Jewish, all right? But God wanted to give Peter and the church and us a much bigger vision. And so you have to understand here the division between a Jew and a Gentile 2,000 years ago. Uh, there was a very sharp cultural, religious, and social division. In fact, if you were a devout Jewish person, you could not even share a meal together with a Gentile. You could do some normal kind of businessy type things, but you're not going to closely associate. You're not going to have a, a strong friendship. You're not going to have um, a meal together with a Gentile. And God is going to break, begin to break down those barriers and those obstacles. And he's going to open up the doors of Peter's heart and hopefully our hearts to his amazing grace. So let's come with me. Chapter 10, turn the page. There was a man in Caesarea. Now, you can still go to Caesarea today. It's a beautiful city. It is on the Mediterranean Sea. I have been there myself. I have stood in this very place. And, uh, and, and a lot of biblical history, including with the Apostle Paul, will also happen here. And there's a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, which is 35 miles north of Joppa, all right? Joppa, where uh, Peter is. And a centurion, uh, there was a centurion named Cornelius, uh, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. So this is a, a Roman soldier uh, and it says he was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. So something unusual about this guy. He's, he's a soldier. 
He's a Gentile. He's of the Italian regiment, not really nearby, but from far away, Italia. And he has come. And normally this guy would be somebody that Jewish people would be very much skeptical of and very kind of careful around and maybe even afraid of because that's your arch enemy. He's, he's the one, the oppressor. Uh, he's the one that you don't want to be friends with. But this guy was different. I mean, he was a man of stature. He commanded uh, a, a regiment and uh, a centurion. That means he's got probably 100 soldiers under his uh, command. And, but it says of him, this very sharp guy, he was a devout man and feared God. Did you notice that was not a plural? Not God's which would be typical of a Roman who would have worshipped dozens of gods and demigods. But this man is different. He is monotheistic. He, he actually believes and fears, has a healthy respect for the one true God of Israel. That's unusual. And it says he did many charitable deeds, many acts of charity for the Jewish people. So he was connected. He cared about the Jewish people. He helped them out. He looked out for them. And he always prayed to God. So yeah, this guy was somebody you looked up to. He was a soldier. He was a leader. He was a man's man. He had that it factor. But he also was something else was unusual about him. And that was he was deeply devout. And he believed in the one true God of Israel. And he constantly was praying to God. It says he always prayed to God. What a guy. Incredible guy, but still something was missing in his life. He's still a Gentile. He's not circumcised like all the Jewish males would be. He's not observing the Jewish rules of diet and a lot of scruples that Jewish people would have observed. But he believes in their one God. About three in the afternoon, this Cornelius distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came and said to him, Cornelius! So apparently God is answering all those always prayers he was making. He hears him and he answers Cornelius' prayer. And it's amazing the way he answers his prayer. I'm excited for this, all right? Staring at him in awe to this angel who's come, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity, he was very generous. They have ascended as a memorial offering before God. In other words, he was open. He had been open to God. And God is now going to Turn on the light and reveal more to him who is open to God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also called Peter. And he is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And he can't miss it because you can smell it for blocks away. That was a little addition to the text. All right. So go to the stinky house in Joppa. Can't miss it. Your nose can be your guide and go there. Send some guys there. And call on Simon Peter. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier. So there's another guy that maybe Cornelius has influenced uh, to also believe in the one true God of Israel. And he calls the three of them together uh, who are all close to Cornelius. And after explaining everything to them, see, I saw this angel. He told me to go look for this guy at the stinky animal, dead animal house. Go there. And he sent them to Joppa. Now, um, they're leaving Caesarea and going to Joppa. Now, eventually God's going to send Peter to Caesarea. But stop there for just a minute, okay? Because we've come across separ- 
uh, Caesarea earlier in the book of Acts. If you go back, you'll find it in Acts chapter 8, verse 40. And it says that a guy named Philip went to Azotus and then he did some other incredible ministry. And then he ended up in Caesarea. So right there in Caesarea, where Cornelius is, where these devout soldiers and his attendants are, there's already an incredible evangelist named Philip. And people are coming into the Lord by the droves through Philip. So question is, why are they having to go get Peter from Joppa when you already have Philip, the evangelist, in town? I mean, he's already really locked down the city for the gospel. Why do you need this? And, and the reason is this, guys. Because everybody that Philip was reaching were Jewish folks. And God is going to do something so incredible and so astounding and so amazing. He's going to make such a kind of a seismic shift to the way God's grace has, has worked in the past. These Gentiles are actually going to come to know in a very personal way Jesus Christ. And for other Jewish folks to be convinced of this, you've got to send in the big guns for that. So Philip's great, but he's just an evangelist. He's not an apostle. You want to have an apostle, not just an apostle, but the apostle, the head of the apostles, Peter, call in the big guns. And that's what God did, because he knew it was going to take Peter to be able to persuade everybody that, yeah, this is really God at work. All right, come with me. All right, here we go. The next day, verse 9, um, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof. And you, you, we've talked about this before, but there's these houses in the ancient world and they have flat roofs and you go up there and you can pray up there. You can dine up there in the cool of the night. It's much cooler on the roof uh, in, the, in that hot climate uh, at nighttime. And so uh, get out of your kind of baked adobe house and, uh, and get up on the roof. So Peter, it's about noon. He went up there to pray. Uh, he's, he, he became hungry, it says, uh, and he wanted to eat. So he's hungry. Uh, and he maybe gets a little drowsy. And, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. And I've never fallen into a trance, but God was doing something here to reveal this to him. And he's hungry, and his stomach is, right, doing some... And so he begins to have a trance about something. And guess what it's going to be about? <laughs> it's going to be about food. Because he's hungry. But God's going to speak to him in a very powerful way. He saw heaven opened in this trance and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down being lowered by its four corners to the earth. And in it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, mind you, Jews had very strict and uh, clear dietary guidelines there is clean and there is unclean. And that still is true today. In fact, I remember going with my uh, friend uh, uh, here in Des Moines a number of years ago, uh, Rabbi Leib Balel. Uh, we, went, we met at Maccabees Deli down uh, in, near downtown uh, Des Moines. And, I, and it was very strict, kosher, clean, unclean. There's only certain types of food that can be eaten today to this day. And so Peter is, is a very strict, his whole life, extremely observant. And he gets this uh, vision, this trance, just eat all the animals. And there's lots of unclean animals. And he says, no, Lord, for I have never eaten anything impure and richly unclean. He's saying to God, God, Lord, surely you can't be serious. 
And God says, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Um, verse 15. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. So in other words, God's changing it up here. He's changing up the rules. The rules have changed. You see, here's the, here's the, the thing you need to understand, is that all those food regulations were pointing, they, they had temporary purpose to, to set apart the people of God. But they were never meant to be, to last forever. And, and Peter's now going to learn this. Um, you know, it's hard to explain this, but it's only designed for an interim period. Guys, years ago, our oldest, Angela, um, she came to me, and she was just a little girl. Uh, I don't remember how old she was, six, eight years old. And she said, Daddy, uh, when can I get earrings? I'd like to have earrings. And I said, you can't have earrings yet. And she says, when can I have earrings? And I said, um, 11? She goes, okay. And she marched into her room and she was gone for a little bit. And then she brought back a piece of paper and said, Angela can get earrings at age 11. She said, would you please sign this? And I, and I signed it, all right? So she wanted it in writing. Anyway, guess what? Angela's 11th birthday came. She didn't get earrings, 12, 13, 14. She didn't get earrings until she was like 18, I guess, when she just decided it wasn't that important to her. She finally did. But you know, the interesting thing was, why did I pick 11? I don't know. It just popped into my head. I, I, I wish I would say this was a matter of deep prayer and that I spent a lot of time pondering over the, you know, the proper age. I, it just popped in my head. 11, that sounds good. But I just said, this is, this is just temporary. It's just for this interim period, I had to buy myself some time to figure it out. And, uh, and in a much more holy way, of course, God had his purposes at work. And he wanted the people of God to be set apart for a specific period of time. But now that moment has come when he's going to open up the grace in a much greater way. And more people are going to be included in his incredible salvation plan. And verse 16 says, this trance of this sheet lowered down, kill and eat. Happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up to heaven. In the scriptures, everything, according to Jewish scriptures, everything is, is uh, established by three witnesses. So he gives them one, two, three, to absolutely make sure Peter gets it right. Three times he had this. Well, Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean. Right away, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they knocked. And they called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision of the three vision, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Three visions, three men. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I've sent them. In other words, I'm about to do something you aren't going to believe. Get on. Get out of here, Peter. Then Peter went down to the man and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house to hear a message from you. So, you know, Peter had to have a vision of this sheet with the animals and the unclean and clean to accept a kind of invitation like that. Because otherwise, think about it. 
three guys come knocking at the door and they're not Jewish folks and they're not friends of yours. They're just strangers. And they're of kind of the Roman people and they're like, we want to talk to you. Our centurion, our boss wants you to come. Leave your house. We're taking you to him. You're probably like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. But he's open to it because he's had this vision. It says, Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. Already you're saying, oh, wait a minute, hold the phone. What happened there? You see, normally if that would have happened to a Jewish man 2,000 years ago, and they said, we'd like to talk with you. He would have said, that's great. Let's make up an appointment. Let's get together. And uh, you guys need a place to stay? Yep. Okay. Um, down the road, uh, there's a, a Motel 4, because uh, they have Motel 6 yet. And, um, and you can find a, a cheap room there. I'm sure you'll be fine. And we'll talk in the morning. But Peter doesn't do that. He knows God's up to something. He knows that God's wanting to open his heart to people that aren't like him. And so he says, come on in, guys. And he gave them lodging in the dead animal house. And they agreed to it, which is amazing in and of itself. The next day, Peter got up and sent out with him. And some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. Kind of back up just in case this goes down poorly. The following day, he entered Caesarea. It's a 35-mile walk. He's had a lot of time to think about this. Now, Cornelius was expecting him and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up and said, stand up, I myself, I, I'm also just a man. In other words, no way, you're not going to fall down on me. I'm not that important. I'm just a guy like you. I'm just a guy who knows Jesus. And he had tremendous humility. God is beginning to teach Peter something here. I mean, I'm sure there's a human part of Peter's like, well, wow, now I'm getting what I've always wanted. The Romans bowing down to me. But... That's not what happened. He said, I'm just a guy like you. That's a grace awakening. When you can begin to look at somebody and just say, they're just, they're just another human being who needs grace, just like me. This already opens up all sorts of good stuff. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people, walks in, big group. Peter said to them, you know, it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. That wasn't in the law of God, but it was in the traditions of the religious leaders. It's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. God's doing a work in Peter's heart. See, he would have had a lot of prejudicial ideas about Gentiles. But he's saying, you know what? God's teaching me something. I'm learning something here. I, I, I'm learning, God's teaching me that I, I, I need to open my eyes. I need to open my heart. And, and people might have done unclean things or done impure things or had impure actions or thoughts. But they're people. And God loves them. And as people, we can't just scratch them off and eliminate them as unclean or impure. God wants us to love them. Regardless, there's just a neighbor. Keep going. Verse 29, that's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? 
I mean, this is really out of my comfort zone. I'm way out on a limb here. We never do this. So God must have a really big purpose in mind. What am I here for? Tell me. And then he tells him very quickly. Verse 30, Cornelius replied, for Days ago at this hour, three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here. He's called Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. The stinky house, you can't miss it. Uh, marginal reading. So I immediately sent for you and it was good for you to come. Thank you. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you've been commanded by the Lord. God is doing something more in our lives. We don't know what it is, but it's a grace awakening moment for us. You see, Peter and Cornelius are now forging a spiritual friendship. They got a Jewish Christian man and a Gentile God-fearing man, and they're beginning to become friends. Peter already knew all that story that Cornelius told, but he had the courtesy and the gentleness and the respect to go slowly and just listen to it. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God does not show favoritism. He doesn't have favorites. He may use certain people in certain ways. He may even use the nation of Israel in a certain way uh, to, to bring forth his Messiah. But he loves all people of all nations. Yes, he does. Every nation and all peoples. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So in other words, if somebody, it doesn't matter what their background is, what ethnicity they are, what their socioeconomic status is, what is their background, if they're open to hearing from God, God will welcome them. That's really what it means. It doesn't mean that they're fully saved or they have the full knowledge of salvation, but God welcomes them to come and learn more. And Peter, he said, I'm, I'm learning new things here. God's showing me stuff I didn't know. And some of his prejudices and some of his, the, the, these incredible social barriers and obstacles are just crumbling before him. He welcomes all who come to him who want to learn more. Then after laying this groundwork, Peter shares with him the good news of Jesus. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace, harmony, restoration of friendship with God. That's peace. Where's that peace come from? He says, through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And so he lays the groundwork. It's all about Jesus. And then he talks about the person and the life and the ministry of Jesus. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached. So Cornelius and those folks are familiar with some of the story. But he's reminding them of this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he, how he went about doing good. I love that. Jesus went everywhere doing good for people. That's how he starts the good news story. Does that remind you of anything we say here at Valley? We do good works to build goodwill. And then we have opportunity to share the good news. Jesus went about doing good and that's what we do. That's why we do things like the Lovey Des Moines days, because we start a good news story just like Jesus did. First thing he did, he went about doing good and healing all. He brought his heart of compassion and healing and power to people. That's what we do. We bring compassion and healing and power to the people we meet, no matter who they are. 
and all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. First, he tells them about the goodness of Jesus and why. Because so many people have misconceptions about who Jesus is. And we need to undo all those misperceptions that people in our culture, in our community, and your friends and your family members and neighbors who are seemingly disinterested. And one of the reasons is because they have misconceptions about who Jesus is. He says, no, 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 he's good. Do the people that we are seeking to love and reach, do they know the goodness of Jesus? How good he is? How much he loves them? Do they really know that? Do they have a taste of it? Have they experienced it from us? Those are great questions to ask because there's all sorts of misperceptions. We ourselves are witnesses of everything Jesus did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. He talked about the cross, his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. God raised up this man on the third day. He talked about his resurrection, his victory over sin and death and caused him to be seen not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then he says, knowing this love for God and his sacrifice of his own son for your sins and his glorious resurrection, he says, it's time to come to trust in him. Why? Verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, Jesus is the one God appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. One day we all answer to him. This good Jesus, this dying for our sins Jesus, this rising from the dead Jesus, this good Jesus, ultimately every person will answer to him. All the prophets testify about him through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If you trust in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, you'll be forgiven of all your sins. And he gets to the heart of it all. He is totally willing and able to wipe the slate clean and to give you a new start. That's the essence and the heart of our message. And on that day, Peter gave that to Cornelius and that big crowd gathered there. And look what happened. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers that's the Jewish folks who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Right before their eyes, they all instantly believed the message of the gospel. And God sent the Holy Spirit and this confirming sign so that the Jewish believers would be convinced, yeah, God loves all people. Not just Jewish people, but all people, even those Gentiles, even those Romans, Italian regiment, soldier guys that you're afraid of. He loves them too. Wow. Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So you're in, you're all in. There's no hoops. There's no like, well, first we got to do circumcision and then we got to teach you all the dietary laws and then we got to teach you a bunch of customs and then we got to do the rituals and then you got to go to the synagogue. He goes, let's just baptize them now. They're all in there with us. They're a part of the family and he does it all at once. And then we get the end of the chapter. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. And a Jewish man named Peter is staying in the house of a Gentile of the Italian regiment, a centurion, and now they become brothers. That's an amazing, amazing gospel story. 
Some takeaways very quickly. Number one, are you hungry for a grace awakening? Because really in this passage, there were two conversions. The first one was Cornelius who understood the good news and he came to faith in Jesus. The second conversion was a Peter who had to be converted from his very narrow idea that God loves people like me to God loves all people and I need to expand my territory of friendship and kindness and brotherhood and sisterhood to include all these Gentiles. The whole world opened up to him. It was a grace awakening for Peter. And maybe today, are you hungry for that? Do you want to know more that the grace God has for you, maybe that's a step into the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for the first time in your life. Ask God for a grace awakening and trust in Jesus Christ today and he'll give it to you. Secondly, maybe you need to ask God to tear down some of the obstacles that you've put between yourself and other people, people who aren't like you, people who are of a different ethnicity, a socioeconomic status, a different perspective, political persuasion, whatever it is. Are you ready to have a grace awakening like Peter did? Because I'm telling you, there isn't a thing you can think of that was a greater distance than what Simon Peter had to overcome that day. We're talking thousands of years of tradition and history. And in one day, those barriers and obstacles came crumbling down. It's amazing. Second, join the grace awakening. Are you hungry for it? Do you want it? Do you really want it? Do you want to be changed and transformed? Do you? If you are, then let's secondly join the grace awakening where God's grace is for everybody. You know, if, it got, if I got in, it must be for everybody because, you know, I'm me and you know you. It's for everybody. God has a heart for all people, all races, all nations. God welcomes all who come to him, who seek him by faith and who trust in Jesus Christ. He has no favorites. Christianity is a global faith. It's not a Western faith. It's a global faith. There is no place in any uh, believer, Christ follower's heart for feelings of superiority based on social class social class, ethnicity, race, gender, disability. There's no place for feelings of superiority. And maybe God has to do a work in our hearts to help us understand that to a deeper level and to enter into the experience of people who have felt like outsiders. Christian people sometimes tend to divide people into categories, their sins and our sins. And God just sees you know, we all got sins. And the Bible puts, doesn't have those categories. It just has sins. And we all need his forgiveness. The rich, the poor, the immigrant, the neighbor, the person with disability, the Latino, the Latina, the African-American, the Asian, whatever it is. God loves them. Are you willing to open up your heart in a, in a, in a significantly new way for everybody? Maybe it's people who have a different political persuasion than yours. Could God do some work in your heart, a grace awakening, to maybe befriend some people you disagree with? If you only can associate with people you agree with on everything, Jesus said you're no better than everybody else, the pagans. They love their friends, the people they agree with. Let's befriend people who are different than we are. And let's realize that we can love them, and we should, as Jesus did. Prior to this event in Peter's life, he never could have imagined the Gentiles would become followers of Jesus. God blew his mind, and God wants to blow your mind because he's got people in mind. That's hard for us, but God wants to use you, and he will stretch you. Principle number three, if God is putting someone on your heart today, 
then he's probably already at work in their heart. Just like Peter gets a vision of this thing you're supposed to do, he's probably already working in somebody else's heart, a guy named Cornelius. So if God's been stirring your heart to reach out to somebody, maybe he's been stirring in their heart some need. They may not be able to name it or know it, but you know, you sense this. Open up your heart. Maybe God's speaking to you. Maybe you need to befriend them. Maybe you need to love them more. Maybe you need to spend more time with them. Maybe you just need to extend an olive branch. I don't know. Keep going. God's moving. And sometimes it'll be very unlikely people. I'm supposed to love that person? Yeah. And God's moving, opening their hearts. Fourth principle. Who are the God-fearers near you? There's people who maybe they're not yet followers of Jesus, but they, they have a serious idea about faith. They're interested in these things. They're open. Maybe they're even church-going people, but they've never had a grace awakening to the message of the gospel. They're open to spiritual conversations. They might be way more open than you realize. What are we waiting for? Now's the time. Number five, God-fearers still need to know Jesus Christ personally. It's not enough to just be like Cornelius who prayed, believed in one God, and gave money to the synagogue. He still needed to hear the message of the gospel because his relationship with God was incomplete without hearing the message of Jesus. How about you? You may be a God-fearing, church-going, moral, ethical person, but have you ever trusted in Jesus? And about those people in your life, they may be good, moral, ethical people, but do they really know Jesus? It's time to befriend them and walk toward them. And the last principle is the grace awakening is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Um, I'm sure you've had times in your life when you, you sign. I, I saw an ad and it's like, hey, you can rent a car for $19 a day on a trip. I thought, that sounds great. And then I started clicking and saying, $19 a day, I can't beat that. And then when they added all the other taxes and, oh, you need that, you need that, it was like double. We don't want to do that with people. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. We're not asking them to jump through hoops, religious hoops, traditional hoops, extra things that I believe that they need to believe before they can come to know God. No, they just need to believe in Jesus and that's good enough. It's the cross. The cross. And nothing but the cross. Nothing will so transform your perspective, God, yourself, and others than a personal awakening to the grace of God. I close with this. Um, about 15 years ago, I was talking with a, a gentleman, an older gentleman, and uh, I, had, I had given him a book to read and I said, I think this might be interesting to you. It's about the grace of God. And this gentleman came back to me and he said, you know what? I, I've never read anything in my life like this before. I, I, I'm an old guy and I've never understood this at all. He was a God-fearing man. He was a churchgoer, but he never really understood the grace of Jesus. That he thought it was about, you know, climbing a, a, a morality ladder and at some point you're good enough. And he was learning that no it's just about Jesus loves you and died for you and rose again and he, he wants you to trust in him. And he said, I just got two questions for you. And I said, sure. And he said, my first question is, can you explain to me what exactly what it means to be born again? I said, absolutely. And I explained to him this spiritual transformation that happens when we simply put our faith in Jesus and don't try to earn his way to heaven, but simply trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection 
And he comes into our lives and gives us his Holy Spirit. And we literally get to start our lives over again. We're born again. And we're new people. We're not the same people we used to be. That's what it means to be born again. I took some time to explain that to him. And he said, that's amazing. I'm believing that. And I thought, wow, this guy is, is getting it. He's, he's trusting in Jesus Christ. And then he had one more question. He said, my only other question is this. He says, and I'm not proud to tell you this. But I want to know if God can forgive a, a sin that I've carried with me for a long time. And I said, what's that? And he said, I'm not proud of this. It was the way I was raised. You know, I'm an old guy. And I grew up in an era that, you know, there was just a lot of racism. And, and I've always struggled with that, that sin of racism. And, and I want to know if God can forgive a guy like me. And I looked into his eyes and I said, Dad, you better believe God can forgive a man like you. Because he forgave a man like me. Father in heaven. I thank you for that day that my father, 15 years ago, had a grace awakening in his life. It was so unexpected for him to be so transparent. And an unexpected conversation happened that I had been praying for for 30 years. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I can't wait to see more and more incredible conversations and grace awakenings in our hearts first and the hearts of many others in our community and beyond. Use this in your name, Lord Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, amen, amen. God bless you guys.